the imitation of Christ. After the Bible, it's meant to be the best book in the world, this imitation of Christ. And that's strange, because it was written about 500 years ago, and it was written for men who were religious. And why is it then found so helpful for just about everybody? I think a reason could be this. We're all called to holiness, and our baptism plants in us a sort of craving for holiness. And Thomas de Kempis, who wrote this book, he shows us again and again the way that we should take entitled Some Thoughts to Help with the Spiritual Life on Imitating Christ and Rejecting All the Folly and Unreality of This World. He who follows me will not walk in darkness, says the Lord. By these words, Christ urges us to mold our lives and characters in the image of His if we wish to be truly enlightened and freed from all blindness of heart. Let us therefore see that we endeavour beyond all else to meditate on the life of Jesus Christ. Christ's teaching is better than all the teaching of the saints, and any man who has the Spirit will find the hidden manner there. It so happens that many people hear the gospel frequently and yet feel little desire, and this is because they do not have the Spirit of Christ. Anyone who wishes to understand and to savour the words of Christ to the full must try to make his whole life conform to the pattern of Christ's life. What good can it do you to discuss the mystery of God the Trinity in learned terms if you lack humility and so displease that God? Learned arguments do not make a man holy and righteous, whereas a good life makes him dear to God. I would rather feel compunction in my heart than be able to define it. If you knew the whole Bible off by heart and all the expositions of scholars, what good would it do you without the love and grace of God? Vanity of vanity, all is vanity. There's no reality in anything except loving God and serving Him alone. Our highest wisdom is to seek the kingdom of heaven, rejecting the things of this world. You're only pursuing an empty phantom if you strive for riches that cannot last and pin your hopes on them, if you canvass for honours and acquire distinction. 
if you obey your natural appetites and desire things which must bring punishment later. If you hope for a long life and care little for a good life. If you think only of this present life and never give a thought to what comes after it. If you set your heart on things which pass away so quickly and do not press on towards that place where lasting joy remains. Call often to mind that old saying, The eye is not satisfied with seeing, nor the ear with hearing. Make it your aim to detach your heart from the love of things which can be seen, and to transfer all your affections to things which cannot be seen. For those who follow the impulses of their senses stain their conscience and lose the grace of God. On having a humble opinion of oneself. Man has a natural desire for knowledge. But what is the good of knowledge without the fear of God? A humble, ignorant man who serves God is better than a proud scholar who observes the movements of the heavens and never gives a thought to his soul. A man who really knows his own nature sets no value on himself and takes no pleasure in being praised by men. Even if I know everything in the world, if I do not have love, what good will it do me in the presence of God, who will judge me by what I've done? Give up this passionate desire for knowledge, because it distracts you and leads you astray. Learned people like to be admired and acquire a name for wisdom, yet there are many things which it does little or no good to the soul to know. And a man's a fool to give his thoughts to things that contribute nothing to his salvation, instead of those that do. The soul is not satisfied by words in their thousands, whereas a good life sets the mind at rest, and a pure conscience gives assurance before God. Unless your life shows a corresponding growth in holiness, increased knowledge and better understanding will only mean severer judgment. So you should not let skill or knowledge elate you, but should rather feel a certain apprehension of what you've been allowed to learn. If you think you have a fair knowledge and understanding of a number of subjects, let me remind you that there are many more of which you know nothing. So do not become proud, but acknowledge your ignorance. What makes you want to put yourself in front of another man when there are many people who are more learned than you and better versed in the Scriptures? If you want to learn something that will really help you, aim at being unknown and thought of no account. The highest and most profitable form of study is to understand one's inmost nature and despise it. Real wisdom and perfection lie in having no high opinion of oneself, but in always thinking highly of others. Even if you see another man openly doing wrong or committing some fault, you should not consider yourself a better man than he is, for you do not know how long you can avoid a fall. We are all of us weak, but you should consider yourself the weakest of all. On being taught by truth How happy a man is when the truth teaches him directly, not through symbols and words that are soon forgotten, but by contact with itself. Our own way of thinking and our own impressions give us only a false or limited view. What is the point of a great argument about abstruse and difficult matters when no one who will be charged at the judgment 
with being ignorant of them. It's very foolish of us to neglect what's profitable and necessary, and deliberately to devote our attention to what is harmful and unnecessary. We have eyes and see not. Why do we trouble ourselves with theories about philosophical subtleties? If the eternal word speaks to a man, he's delivered from many conjectures. That one word is the source of all things, and all things speak of that word. That word is the beginning, and that word speaks to us. All understanding and all right judgment are derived from him. When a man sees all things as that one word, refers all things to that one word, views all things in that one word, then he can be inwardly stable and rest at peace in God. O God, the truth, unite me with yourself in everlasting love. I often grow tired of reading and hearing so much. In you lies all I really wish or desire. Let all teachers fall silent. Let every creature hold its peace before you. Speak to me yourself, and speak alone. As a man grows in inward unity and simplicity, he finds that more and more deep truths are made plain to him without any effort, because the heaven-sent light brings him understanding. The spirit that is pure, unified, and stable does not lose its inward harmony, whatever it may do, for such a spirit does everything so as to honor God and strives to be free from all self-seeking. What causes you most hindrance and trouble is the fact that your own inclinations and desires are still very much alive. The good, devout man first puts right within him the impulses from which his outward actions proceed, and nothing that he does can put him at the mercy of corrupt desires, because he makes all his actions conform to the dictates of reason. No one has a harder struggle than the man who is striving to overcome himself. And it should be our business to overcome ourselves, and every day to get the upper hand over our old nature, and to show some progress and improvement. Everything that is perfect in this life has some imperfection bound up with it, and there's nothing we investigate that is without its darkness. Humble recognition of what your nature is will lead more surely to God than profound searching for knowledge. Learning, or the simple knowledge of facts, can be good and instituted by God, and then there is no fault to be found with it. But a good conscience and a holy life must always be preferred. Many people go wrong because they are more eager to acquire knowledge than to lead good lives, and so they bear little or no fruit. If only they showed as much determination in rooting out sins and ingrafting virtues as they do in debating, there would not be so many evils and scandals among the laity, nor so much lack of discipline in religious houses. When the day of judgment comes, we shall not be asked what we've read, but what we've done, not if we made fine speeches, but if we lived religious lives. Tell me, what has become of all those distinguished scholars and teachers who are so well known while they were still alive?
Other men have their places now, and I doubt if they ever give them a thought. During their lifetime they were thought to be something, yet now no one speaks of them. How quickly the glory of this world fades away. If only their lives had matched their learning, then they would have read and studied to some good purpose. Many perish because they are filled with empty knowledge in this life and care little for the service of God. They choose to be great rather than humble, and so, as St. Paul puts it, become futile in their thinking. A really great man has great love. A really great man is humble in his own eyes and considers all distinction and honor worthless. A really wise man treats all earthly things as refuse in order to gain Christ. A man who's really learned something is one who does the will of God and abandons his own will. On Thinking Before Acting We do well to believe less than we're told and to keep a wary eye on our own impulses. Whatever it is, we should think the matter over slowly and carefully, referring it to God. Unfortunately, our weakness is such that we're much more ready to believe and speak evil of others than good. Yet perfect men do not likely believe everyone who chatters to them, since they know that human nature is weak and inclined to evil, and very easily betrayed into slips of the tongue. It's wise neither to be impetuous nor to hold obstinately to your own opinions. This means first that you should not believe any chance thing that's said to you, nor should you immediately pour out into another's ears something you overheard or have been told. Secondly, you should ask the advice of men who are wise and conscientious and be ready to be guided by a better man instead of following your own devices. It's a good life that makes a man wise by God's standards. It means that he learns from experience. Only if a man is humble and subject to God can he behave with wisdom and calm in every circumstance. On reading the Holy Scriptures In the Holy Scriptures we must look for truth, not eloquence. All scripture must be read in the spirit in which it is written, and in the scriptures we should look for what will help us, and not for subtle points. We should be just as ready to read devout, simple books as deep and learned ones. You must not take offence at the writer's lack of learning and question his authority, but read the book from love of simple truth. Do not ask who it was that wrote it, but what it was he wrote. Men pass away, but the faithfulness of the Lord endures forever. God uses all kinds of ways to speak to us, and he makes no distinction between man and man. When we read the scriptures, we are often hindered by our curiosity, because we want to know and discuss where we ought simply to read on. If you want to drink in spiritual benefit, read in humility, simplicity and faith and at no point desire to be known for your learning. Be glad to inquire from holy men and listen to their answers in silence. Do not take offence at what the wise have to tell you, for they have good reason for what they say. On an Undisciplined Frame of Mind 
Whenever a man feels an undisciplined desire for something, his spirit at once becomes restless. The proud and covetous are never at rest, but the poor and humble in spirit pass their lives in abundance of peace. The man who is not yet perfectly dead to self is easily tempted. Small and petty things defeat him. If a man is spiritually weak and to some extent still subject to his flesh and inclined to tangible things, it's difficult for him to free himself altogether from worldly desires. He's often miserable if he does try to give them up. Also, he easily takes offence if anyone does not fall in with his wishes. If, on the other hand, he gets what he longs for, his guilty conscience weighs him down at once, because he's given way to his natural impulses, which had no help at all towards the peace he sought. So it's by resisting the desires that true peace of heart is found, not by yielding to them. That is why there's no peace in the heart of a man who's ruled by his natural desires and prisoner to externals. But there is peace in a man who is spiritually alive and ruled by spiritual standards. On avoiding empty confidence and pride. A man is a fool if he pins his hopes either on men or things. For love of Jesus Christ, you must be prepared to be a servant to other people and to do without this world's possessions. Do not make a stand on your own resources, but build your hopes on God. Do the best you can, and God will support your good intention. Do not rely on your own experience or anyone's worldly wisdom, but rely on the grace of God, who helps the lowly and humbles the presumptuous. Do not glory in riches if you have them, nor in powerful friends, but glory in God, who provides all, and above all, desires to impart himself. Do not exult in a well-formed, beautiful body, for it only needs a little sickness to spoil and shatter it. Do not let your abilities and mental powers make you pleased with yourself, or you may displease God, to whom belongs all the gifts given you by nature. Do not think yourself better than others, or God may think you worse, for he knows what lies in man. Do not let your good works fill you with pride, because God does not judge like men. Men are often pleased by the things that displease him. If you have some good gift, believe that others have better gifts, and so you will keep humble. It does no harm to think yourself inferior to every other person, but it does a great deal of harm if you think yourself superior even to one other person. The humble man knows continual peace, but in the heart of the proud there's often jealousy and discontent. On avoiding excessive familiarity, and I'd remind you again that this book was written for male religious. It is not to every person that you are to lay bare your inmost thoughts. Discuss your business with a man who is wise and God-fearing. Do not mix with young people and those outside the monastery. Do not carry favour with the rich, and do not appear willingly in the company of the great. Make your companions the lowly and the unpretentious, the devout and law-abiding, and talk of the things that will build up faith. You should not be on familiar terms with any woman, but commend all good women together to God. You should want only God and his angels to know you well, 
and should shun the notice of men. Love you should feel for all people, but it's not good for you to be familiar with all. It sometimes happens that someone we do not know personally has a shining reputation, but if we meet him, we find he's an eyesore. In the same way, we think other people find pleasure in our company, but really, they dislike us when they see our faulty lives. On Obedience and Submission It's a great thing to be in obedience, to live under a superior and give up one's independence. It's much safer to submit to authority than to exercise it. Many are under authority from necessity rather than love, and such people suffer misery and soon begin to complain. They will never attain freedom of mind unless they submit wholeheartedly for the sake of God. You can run from one place to another, but you will find peace only in humble submission under the direction of a superior. Many people have been deceived by fancying other places and by moving about. Every one of us likes to do what he himself thinks best, and we tend to side with those who agree with us. Yet if God is among us, it's sometimes necessary to abandon our own convictions to keep the blessing of peace. No one is wise enough to know every detail and circumstance, so you must not rely exclusively on your own judgment, but be prepared to hear what others think. If your own opinion is a valid one, and for God's sake you give it up in favor of another's, you will make great progress by it. I've often heard it said that it's safer to listen and receive advice than give it. It can also happen that each man's opinion is a sound one, but it's a sign of obstinacy and pride to be unwilling to give way to others when reason and circumstance demand it. On Avoiding Unnecessary Talk As far as possible, avoid the company of men, for it's a great hindrance to talk of worldly affairs, even if you do it with an honest intention. It does not take long for empty pursuits to defile and capture us again. There are many occasions when I wish I kept my silence unbroken and had not mixed with men. Why are we so ready to talk and chat with other people when we rarely return to our silence without some injury to our conscience? We do it because we hope to receive some comfort from our conversation together and because we want to unburden our hearts which are full of all the things we have thought. We are only too glad to fill our thoughts with the things we love or desire or find difficult, and to talk to others about them. The pity is that it's so often silly and useless to do so, for this outward comfort can destroy the inward comfort that is the gift of God. We must watch and pray, therefore, so that time is not wasted. If you have permission to speak, and it's for your good to do so, talk of things which will strengthen your faith. Bad habits and lack of concern for spiritual progress make us careless in guarding our lips. But if spiritual things are discussed together devoutly, especially where men of one mind and spirit enjoy fellowship together in God, then spiritual progress is furthered. On peace and eagerness for spiritual progress We could have great peace if we were prepared to abandon our curiosity about other people's words and actions and things which are no business of ours. How can a man remain at peace for any length of time 
if he involves himself in the affairs of others and is always looking for a chance to interfere in the world around him and hardly ever withdraws into himself and quietens all his thoughts. It is the single-minded who are blessed, for they shall have peace in all its fullness. How was it the son of the saints reached such heights of perfection and contemplation? They strove to die completely to every earthly longing, and so they were able to hold fast to God with all their inmost heart and concentrate without hindrance on the life within. We are too much occupied with our own emotions, too much concerned with transitory things. It's rare for us to overcome even one fault completely, and we are not on fire to make daily progress. That is why we remain cold and uninspired. If we were utterly dead to self, and if our hearts were stripped of encumbrance, then we could get a glimpse of the things of God and experience something of heavenly contemplation. Our chief and greatest stumbling block is that we are not free from emotions and desires, and we do not attempt to enter on the perfect way of the saints. When even a slight adversity befalls us, we are far too ready to be cast down and to turn to human comfort. If only we would make an effort to stand firm in the battle, then we should assuredly see the help of the Lord coming down on us from heaven. He is ready to help those who are struggling and hoping in His grace, for He provides opportunities for battle in order that we may be victorious. If we think progress in our calling depends merely on outward observances, there will soon be an end to our devotion. We must lay the axe to the root of the tree, so that we may be cleansed from our passions and possess a mind at peace. If we rooted out one failing every year, we should soon be perfect men. But as it is, we often experience quite the opposite. We discover that we were better and purer men when we were first converted from the world than now, after many years of monastic life. Fervor and progress ought to be greater every day, but is thought an achievement now if a man can retain even some of his first enthusiasm. If we would only be firm with ourselves at first, everything afterwards would be easy and delightful. It's hard to give up something you're used to, and even harder to go against your own will. But how are you ever going to overcome hard things if you do not defeat little easy ones? You must resist the impulse and unlearn the bad habit in the early stages, otherwise it may turn into something much harder to deal with. If only you realized what peace you could give yourself and what joy you could give to others by practicing self-discipline, I think you would be more anxious to show some spiritual progress. On the benefits to be gained from meeting difficulty It is a good thing that we have to face difficulties and opposition from time to time, because this brings us back to ourselves. It makes us realize that we're exiles and cannot pin our hopes on anything in this world. It's a good thing that we are maligned now and again and are misjudged and disliked even when we mean and do well. This sort of thing is often a great help in achieving humility and it keeps us from groundless self-satisfaction. For we are more ready to listen to God's assuring voice within when those around believe the worst of us and treat us with contempt 
That is why a man should build his life on God, for then he will not need to look for human consolation. When troubles and temptations and evil thoughts attack a man who is trying to do God's will, they make him realize how necessary God is to him, since he can do no good without him. The miseries he is enduring fill him with grief, and he groans and prays. He feels weary of life and longs for death to come, so that he may have done with this world and go to be with Christ. At such times he really sees that perfect tranquility and fullness of peace cannot exist in this world. On Resisting Temptation As long as we are in this world, we shall have to face trials and temptations. As it says in the book of Job, what is man's life on earth but a time of temptation? That is why we should treat our temptations as a serious matter and endeavor by vigilance and prayer to keep the devil from finding any loophole. Remember that the devil never sleeps but goes about looking for his prey. There is no one so perfect and holy that he never meets temptation. We cannot escape it altogether. Yet temptations often bring great benefits, even if they're disagreeable and a great burden. For in temptation a man is humbled, purified, and disciplined. All the saints passed through many trials and temptations, and that was how they made spiritual progress, while those who could not stand up to temptation fell away and lost their salvation. However holy a religious order may be, However remote a place, temptations and difficulties will still be found there. Man is not entirely safe from temptation as long as he's alive, because the source of temptation lies within us. We're born in concupiscence. When one trial or temptation leaves us, another takes its place, and we will always have something to endure, because we have lost the blessing of human happiness. Many people try to run away from temptation, and all they do is fall more heavily. We cannot be victorious if we only run away, but patience and true humility will give us strength to defeat every enemy. A man will not make much progress if he rejects the actual temptation, but fails to root out its cause. The temptation will soon come back, and he will suffer worse. It's by slow degrees, by patience and long-suffering with the help of God, that you will win the victory, not by harshness and impatience. When you're tempted, seek guidance often from others. And do not yourself deal harshly with someone else who is tempted, but comfort him as you would wish to be comforted yourself. The starting point of all evil temptings lies in inconstancy of mind and small confidence in God. The slack man who abandons his fixed resolve is battered by all kinds of temptations, like a ship with no steersman, driven to and fro by the waves. Iron is proved in the fire, and the upright man in temptation. We often do not know what we're capable of till temptation reveals what kind of persons we are. All the same, when temptation first appears, we must be especially alert because it's easier to defeat the enemy if we do not allow him to set foot inside the door of the mind, but meet him on the step as he knocks. As an ancient writer once said, resist the beginnings, 
cure is provided too late. For first of all, a thought simply crosses the mind. Then it grows stronger and takes shape. Then comes pleasure, an evil impulse, and consent. So our malignant enemy gradually obtains complete entry if we do not resist him at the start. If a man is slow in stirring himself up to resist, he will grow weaker every day, while the enemy forces grow stronger. Some people endure harder temptations when they're first converted, some at the end. Some find things difficult throughout their whole lives, while a few are tried very mildly. God in his wisdom and justice has so decreed it, and he weighs the situation and the merits of men, and foreordains everything for the salvation of his elect. For this reason, we should not despair when tempted, but beseech God all the more fervently to aid us in his mercy in every kind of distress. For as St. Paul says, with the temptation itself, he will ordain the issue of it and enable you to hold your own. So let us humble our souls under the hand of God in every temptation and trouble, for he will save and exalt those who are humble in spirit. Trials and temptations test what progress a man has made. It's there that merit is found and virtue better revealed. It's no great thing for a man to feel fervor and devotion to God when he is not troubled. But if he patiently maintains his spiritual state in a time of adversity, then there is hope of great progress. Some people are kept from great temptations and yet are defeated in the little affairs of every day. This humbles them and teaches them never to rely on themselves where important things are concerned, since they are found so weak in unimportant ones. On Avoiding Hasty Judgments Turn your eyes on yourself, and beware of judging the actions of others. In judging others, a man expends effort to no purpose. He is often mistaken and easily sins. But in judging himself, and in scrutinizing his own actions, he is always exerting himself profitably. Our feelings about anything often affect the way we judge it, because it's easy to lose the faculty of honest judgment through self-interest. If God were always the pure purpose of all our desires, it would not be so easy for our own feelings to resist and throw us into confusion. But as it is, there is something that carries us along with it, whether it lurks in our own hearts or affects us from outside. Many people are not aware that they are secretly pursuing their own interest in what they are doing. They give the impression of deep, unshakable peace, as long as life brings what they want and behaves the way they think it should. But the moment things cease to go the way they want, we find them upset and unhappy. It is differences of feeling and opinion that so often cause dissension among friends and fellow citizens, among the religious and devout. This is because it is difficult to abandon a belief of long-standing, and because no one is easily persuaded to accept a new point of view. If you rely on your own reason and efforts rather than on the submissive virtue of Jesus Christ, it will be a long, slow process before you are spiritually enlightened. God wants us to be perfectly submitted to Him, 
and to transcend all human reason through the burning flame of love. On good works springing from love. An evil deed must not be committed for anything in the world, not even from affection for anyone. But for the good of someone in need, a good work may sometimes be left undone or exchanged for a better one. In this way, the good work is not destroyed, but changed into something better. A good deed done without love goes for nothing. But if anything is done from love, however small and inconsiderable it may be, every bit of it is counted. God considers what lies behind the deed, and not what is actually done. A man does much if he has much love. A man does much if he does what he has to do well. A man does well if he does the will of the community and not his own will. Often, what seems to be love is really an unspiritual emotion, because there's usually some trace of natural inclination, our own wishes, the hope of repayment, and the desire to further our own ends. The man who has true and perfect love does not seek his own advantage in anything, but desires only that God may be glorified in all things. He feels no envy towards anyone, because he has no desire for any pleasure that is not shared. Nor does he want any joy that springs from self, because he desires to find his happiness above all good gifts in God. Goodness he does not attribute to any man but ascribes it wholly to God, the source from whom all things proceed, the end in whom all the saints rest and find their delight. Anyone who had a spark of the true love would surely know that everything on earth was deceptive and unreal. On bearing with the failings of others The things a man is unable to put right, either in himself or in others, he must endure, until it's God's will to change them. Reflect that a situation like this is more likely to test you and teach you patience, and without patience we have no merits worth considering. Still, you should pray about the things that are a problem to you, asking God in His mercy to help you bear them with kindliness. If anyone does not comply when you've urged him once or twice, do not argue with him, but commit the whole situation to God who knows how to turn evil into good, so that his will may be done in all his servants, and honor brought to his name. Try to be patient in bearing with the failings and weaknesses of other people, whatever they may be. You too have many faults, which others have to endure. If you cannot make yourself the kind of person you wish, how can you expect to have someone else to your liking? We want perfection in other people, and yet we do not put right our own failings. We want to see others firmly corrected, but we refuse correction ourselves. We take offense when permission is given to others, but we do not want our own requests refused. We want rules to check the activities of others, but we're indignant at restrictions on ourselves. It's clear how rarely we apply to our neighbors the same standards as ourselves. If everyone were perfect, we should have nothing to bear from other people for the sake of God. 
As it is, he's made things the way they are, so that we may learn to bear the burden of one another's failings. There's no one free from weakness, no one without a load to carry, no one who's self-sufficient, no one who can dispense with others' help. And so it's our duty to support each other, to comfort each other, to help, guide, and advise each other. A man's true quality is revealed when things are difficult. Events do not make a man weak. They only show what stuff he's made of. The Monastic Life You must learn to crush your natural feelings on all sorts of occasions if you wish to live with others in unbroken peace and concord. It is no small thing to live in a monastery or religious community and so spend your life there that you're beyond reproach and keep faith to the point of death. A man is blessed if he can live well in such a place and continue well to the end. If you wish to live as you ought and progress steadily, you must conduct yourself as an exile wandering on the earth. You must become a fool for Christ's sake if you wish to live the religious life. The habit and the tonsure contribute little. It's a change of character and the killing of the old impulses that make the true religious. A man who is looking for anything but God and the salvation of his soul will find nothing but sorrow and distress. Neither can anyone long remain in peace unless he is striving to be the least subject to everyone else. You came to serve and not to rule. Understand that you were called to suffer and to work, not to waste time and gossip. Here men are put to the test like gold tried in the crucible. Here no one can last unless he is prepared wholeheartedly to humble himself for God. The Example of the Holy Fathers If you consider the vigorous example we have in the Holy Fathers, who shone with true perfection and religion, you will see the insignificance and the nothingness of what we do, how far our way of life falls short of theirs. Those holy men and friends of Christ went hungry and thirsty, cold and naked, they met with toil and weariness, and denied themselves food and sleep. They gave themselves to prayer and holy meditation, and faced persecution and insult, and so they served the Lord. How many bitter trials were endured by the apostles, martyrs, confessors and virgins, and all who desired to follow where Christ had led. They were enemies to their own lives in this world, in order to preserve their lives and live eternally. What a life of strict self-denial the fathers lived in the desert! What long, hard temptations they endured! How often the enemy harassed them! What frequent, burning prayers they offered to God! What rigorous abstinence they practiced! How full of zeal and fervor they were for spiritual progress! How hard they fought to subdue their faults! How purely and unswervingly they directed their wills to God! By day they worked, and by night they spent long hours in prayer, though even while they were working they never ceased from praying mentally. Every moment they spent usefully. The time they could give to God seemed short to them, and in the great sweetness of contemplation they forgot the body's need of food. They renounced all possessions, rank, honors, friends and family, and wanted to have nothing to do with the world. 
They hardly took enough to keep themselves alive and were sorry to attend to the body, even when it was unavoidable. So they had little in the way of earthly possessions, but they had grace and virtue in plenty. They lived in material poverty, but in their hearts were enriched by the grace and comfort of God. They were strangers to the world, but to God they were close, familiar friends. In their own eyes they were nothing, and the world despised them, but in the eyes of God they were precious and beloved. They practiced true humility and lived in straightforward obedience. Their daily lives were filled with patience and love, and so every day they made some spiritual progress, and God was well pleased with them. They were given to be an example to all who follow the religious life, and we ought to find more of an incentive to progress in them than an encouragement to slackness in the vast numbers of people who remain half-hearted. What fervor there was in all religious when they first established their holy way of life. What devotion in prayer, what enthusiasm for virtue, what discipline, what reverence and obedience under the rule of the superior flourished among them all. There are traces still left to tell us that they were truly perfect and holy men who fought with energy and trampled the world underfoot. But now a man is considered great if he manages not to do wrong or if he can show some patience in enduring what he's undertaken. How lukewarm and indifferent our present state is. We fall away so quickly from our first enthusiasm, and by this time we're tired of living from our very weariness and lack of inspiration. You've often enough seen the example of devout people. I hope you're still sufficiently awake to make some progress in virtue. The Exercises of a Good Religious The life of a good religious should abound in all the virtues, so that he really is the kind of man he gives the impression of being. In fact, there ought to be much more in him than those around can see, because God is the one who really examines us, and we should feel awe towards him wherever we may be, and should walk in purity before him like his angels. Every day we should make a fresh resolve and stir ourselves up to ardor as if we had just come to the monastery for the first time today. We should say, O oh Lord God, help me in my good resolve and in your holy service. Grant that I may this day make a real beginning, for what I've done so far is nothing. Our progress depends upon our resolution, and a man who wishes to make good progress needs perseverance. If a man fails, even when he sets his purpose firmly before him, what will happen to the man who does not often make a resolution and is not really determined about it? We fall short of our purpose in all kinds of ways, and even a slight omission in our exercises can hardly pass without some loss. The resolve of the upright depends on the grace of God, not on their own wisdom. In Him they trust, Whatever they undertake, for man proposes, God disposes, and it is not for man to choose his lot. If you sometimes omit your usual exercise for some spiritual reason, or for the good of a brother, it will be easy to resume it again afterwards. But it is very bad to abandon it out of carelessness, 
or because you are tired of it, and you will find you suffer for it. Even if we try as hard as we can, we will still often fail without much reason. We must always set some definite resolve before us, especially to combat the things that hinder us most. Both our inward and our outward lives contribute to our progress, and so we must examine both and set both to rights. If you are not able to keep your thoughts collected all the time, concentrate them occasionally and at least once a day, in the morning, for example, or in the evening. In the morning, resolve on your conduct for the day, and in the evening, review it. What kind of person did you show yourself today in word and thought and deed? In all of these, you may have offended both God and your neighbor often. Make a bold stand against the craftiness of the devil. Bridle your desire for food, and you will find it easier to bridle all the body's cravings. Never be completely idle, but be reading or writing or praying or meditating or working at something that will benefit the community. Yet physical exercise must be taken with discretion, and not equally by all. Practices that are not shared by the whole community should not be paraded in public. Your private devotions are best exercised in secret. All the same, you must beware of becoming careless about communal devotions because you feel more inclined to private ones. When you have fully and faithfully carried out what you're obliged and instructed to do, then, if there's any time left, you can give your attention to yourself as your devotion requires. Not everyone can make use of the same exercise. Some people are better served by one and some by another. Besides, different exercises suit better at different times. Some are more to our taste on feast days, others on ordinary days. We need some in time of temptation, others in time of peace and quiet. There are some things we're glad to think of when we're sad, and others when we're glad in the Lord. When the principal festivals come round, we should make a fresh start with our good exercises, and implore the intercession of the saints more earnestly than ever. At every festival, we should make a resolution as if we were now going to leave this world and come to the eternal festival. At these times of devotion, we should prepare ourselves carefully and live more devoutly and keep all our observances more strictly as if we were shortly going to receive the reward of our labors from God. If it is delayed, we must suppose that we are not sufficiently prepared and are still unworthy of the great glory which is to be revealed in us at the appointed time, and we must try to make ourselves ready to leave. Blessed is that servant, says the evangelist Luke, who is found doing this when his Lord comes. I promise you, he will give him charge of all his goods. On loving solitude and silence. Make time to attend to your inner life, and frequently think over the benefits God has given you. Abandon those subjects you find so fascinating, and instead of reading books which interest your mind, read those which nourish compunction. If you give up unnecessary conversation, idle walking about, and listening to news and talk, you will find plenty of time which you can well devote to good meditation. 
The greatest of the saints avoided the company of men as often as they could and chose to serve God in secret. As somebody once said, If ever I go among men, I come back less of a man. We often experience the truth of this if we chat together too long. It is easier to keep quiet altogether than not to say a word too much. It is easier to stay completely hidden than to watch yourself if you go out. The man who intends to reach the inner castle of the Spirit must, with Jesus, withdraw from the crowd. No one can safely go among men but the man who loves solitude. No one can safely speak but the man who loves silence. No one can safely be in command but the man who has learnt complete obedience. No one can safely rejoice unless he has within him the witness of a good conscience. Yet the security of the saints was always full of the fear of God, nor were they any the less careful and humble because they shone with virtue and grace. The security of the wicked comes from pride and presumption, and in the end it betrays them. You must never expect security in this life, even if you are known as a good monk or a devout hermit. The people with the best reputations have often been in greatest danger, because they have become too self-confident. So for many people, it is better if they are not free from temptation, but are attacked often, as this prevents them from feeling too secure, or becoming arrogant, or from turning aside easily to enjoy external comforts. If only we never looked for transitory delights, or concerned ourselves with the world, then we would keep our conscience clear. If only we would prune away all our useless concerns and think only of God and our salvation and rest all our hopes on Him, then we would know such depths of peace and quietness. No one is fit for heavenly comfort unless he has made an effort to feel the holy emotion of compunction. If you desire to feel this compunction in your heart, go into your room and shut out the turmoil of the world. As the Bible says, take thought in the silence of your hearts. You will find in your cell what you will often lose outside. If you spend much time in your cell, it will become increasingly delightful to you. But if you absent yourself, you will find you come to hate it. If, when you are first converted, you keep to it as much as you can, it will become your beloved friend and a place of joy and comfort. It is in the peace and quietness of the cell that the devout soul makes progress and learns the hidden truths of Scripture. It is there that it finds the floods of tears which will wash it clean every night. And as it withdraws from all the tumult of the world, it comes to know its Creator. For God and His holy angels will draw close to the man who withdraws from acquaintances and friends. It is better to be hidden and to take thought for one's soul than to neglect oneself and work miracles. A religious deserves praise when he rarely goes outside, avoids being seen, and has no wish to see others. Why do you want to see things that you may not possess? The world and its gratifications pass away. It's the longings of the senses that induce us to go outside, but when the hour has passed, we come back with nothing but a burden on our conscience and turmoil in our hearts. A glad departure often leads to a sad return. 
and happiness in the evening makes the morning sad. Every unspiritual joy looks attractive as it first creeps in, but in the end it poisons and destroys. What can you see anywhere that you cannot see here? Here you have the sky, the earth, and all the elements as well, since they make everything. What can you see anywhere that the sun will shine on for long? You may think that if you saw it, you would be content, but that will never be so. If everything that exists appeared before your eyes, it would be nothing but a spectacle that gave no satisfaction. Lift your eyes to God in high heaven, and pray for the things you have done and left undone. Leave empty things to empty-minded people, and direct your thoughts to God's commands for you. Shut the door upon yourself, and invite in Jesus, your beloved. Stay with him in your cell, for you will not find peace like that elsewhere. If you had never left your cell, and never heard any news from outside, you would have remained at peace. If you take pleasure in hearing new things, you are bound to have your quiet of heart disturbed. On Compunction of Heart If you wish to make any progress, keep yourself in awe of God and avoid excessive freedom of manner. See that all your senses are disciplined and held in check and do not indulge in mistimed hilarity. Give yourself to compunction of heart and then you will find devotion. Compunction will open the way to many blessings that you lose if you let yourself grow careless. It would be a strange thing if any man could find this life a source of perfect happiness, if he seriously considered his exile state and the many dangers that threaten his soul. But we are careless about our shortcomings and take everything so lightly, and so we do not feel our soul's distress. We often indulge in empty laughter when we have good reason to weep. Yet this is not real freedom or true happiness. That can only be found in awe of God and a good conscience. The happy man is one who can shake off the burden of his disordered thoughts and concentrate every faculty in one holy emotion of compunction. The happy man is one who can discard everything that stains or burdens his conscience. Be a man and make an effort. Only a good habit can defeat a bad one. If you are able to leave other people alone, they will leave you alone to do what you have to do. Do not make other people's affairs a part of your concern, and do not get yourself involved in important people's business. Always have an eye in the first place to yourself, and see that you give yourself advice before you give it to your friends. If you are not popular with others, you should not let it make you unhappy, but you should be worried when you see that you are not living with the discipline and care proper to a servant of God and a devout religious. It is often better for a man and safer if he does not have many comforts in this life, especially the sort that please his natural instincts. All the same, if we do not have divine comfort, or if we experience it only rarely, we are to blame because we do not endeavour to feel compunction in our hearts, nor do we reject all empty and external comforts. You must recognise that you are unworthy of the divine comfort, and that trials are what you deserve. When a man achieves the state of true compunction, the whole world becomes a bitter burden to him.
the good man can find plenty to cause him sorrow and tears. He has only to consider himself or think of his neighbour to realise that no one lives on this earth without distress. And the more closely he looks at himself, the more his grief increases. Our sins and failings give us good cause for sorrow and inner compunction, because we are so bound down by them that we are hardly ever able to raise our eyes to heavenly things. If you gave more thought to your death and less to the years you still have left, you would certainly show more enthusiasm in putting right your faults. If you really thought seriously about the pains that await you in hell or purgatory, I am sure you would endure toil and suffering gladly, and would submit to any hardship without a moment's hesitation. It is because such thoughts do not penetrate to our hearts, and because we love what is pleasant, that we remain so cold and apathetic. Often it is because of our spiritual poverty that our wretched body complains so readily. So humbly pray the Lord that he will give you the spirit of compunction, and say with the prophet, Allot us, O Lord, for food, for drink, only the full measure of our tears. The Miseries of Our Human State You are a pitiable creature wherever you are and wherever you turn, unless you turn to God. Why are you so disconcerted when things do not go the way you want them to? Does anyone have everything his own way? No, not you nor I, nor any man on earth. There is no one in this world who does not have some trouble and distress, not even a king or a pope. Yet there is someone who is happier than others, and that is the man who is able to suffer for God. You find many weak and foolish people who say, Look what a fine life that man has. He is rich and great and powerful and distinguished. Yet if you turn your eyes to heavenly blessings, you will see that all these temporal things are not blessings at all. In fact, they are burdens, because they cannot be relied on, and because they always involve anxiety and fear. Man's happiness does not depend on an abundance of temporal possessions. A modest amount is sufficient for him. It is a wretched thing to have to live on earth. Life here becomes steadily more distasteful to anyone who is longing to be more spiritual. For such a person is always seeing more clearly and feeling more deeply the shortcomings of our mortal state. For eating and drinking, waking and sleeping, resting and working, and submitting to all that our body demands, proves great hardship and misery to the devout man, who longs to have done with it all and be freed from all sin. The needs of the body in this world are certainly a great burden to the inner self. That is why the prophet prays devoutly that he might be freed from them, saying, Deliver me from my distress, O Lord. No good can befall those people who do not realize that their state is wretched. And this is even more true of those who actually love this wretched mortal life. Some people are so attached to life, even if they can hardly get enough by working or begging, to provide the bare necessities, that if they could live here forever, they would never give a thought to the kingdom of God. What senseless and unbelieving men they are! They grovel in earthly concerns until they cannot appreciate anything that is not material. Yet in the end, these wretched people will find out to their cost how worthless and unreal were the things they loved. On the other hand, the saints of God and all the devout friends of Christ paid no attention to the things that gratify their natural appetites, 
or to the fine things of this world, but they set their eyes on the blessings of eternity and hoped and longed for nothing else. Their desire was directed upwards towards the invisible things that endure, for fear that the love of visible things should drag them down to the depths. My brother, do not throw away that confidence you have of attaining spiritual things. There's still time and opportunity. But why put off making your resolve? Stand up and begin this moment. Say to yourself, Now is the time for action. Now is the time for battle. Now is the right time to mend my ways. When you are distressed and troubled, that is the time for winning merit. Your way must lead through fire and water before you are granted relief. Unless you are cruel to your natural instincts, you will never get the better of your faults. As long as we wear this feeble body, we cannot be free from sin or live without weariness and suffering. We would like to escape from all our miseries and no peace, but when sin destroyed our innocence, we lost true happiness as well. So we must hold on in patience and wait for God's mercy until the storm has passed by and our mortal nature is swallowed up in life. Human nature is so weak, it's always ready to sin. Today you confess your sins, and tomorrow you commit again the very sins you've just confessed. You resolve to be on your guard, and in an hour you're behaving as if you had never resolved. We may well feel ashamed and never think much of ourselves when we're so weak and insecure. Besides, we can soon destroy through carelessness the very thing we've only just managed to achieve with much labor, and that with the help of grace. What will happen to us later on, when we lose our enthusiasm so early in the day? No good will come to us if we want to turn aside and rest as if peace and security were here already, when so far there is not a trace of true holiness in our lives. We might well be treated like good novices and be put under instruction again to learn right conduct, if there were any hope that such a course would lead to our improvement and greater spiritual progress. On considering one's death. Very soon, all will be over for you in this life, so ask yourself how you will fare in the next. A man is here today and gone tomorrow, and once he's out of our sight, it is not long before he's out of our minds as well. The human heart is so hard and unresponsive. It only troubles about the present, with never a glance for the future. In all your doing and thinking, you should act on the assumption that you're going to die today. If you had a good conscience, death would hold no great fears for you. You would do better to shrink from sin than to run in fear from death. If you're not prepared for death today, are you likely to be prepared tomorrow? Tomorrow is uncertain. How can you be sure you will have a tomorrow? What is the use of a long life when we show so little improvement? Long life, unfortunately, does not always improve us, but often piles up sins instead. If only we had spent one single day well while on this earth. Many people reckon up the years since their conversion, but often there's not much of a harvest to show for it in the way of spiritual improvement. Death may well be a dreadful thing, but possibly it's more hazardous to remain alive. A man is blessed if he is able to keep the hour of his death continually before his eyes, and every day to hold himself in readiness for death. 
If you have ever seen a man die, recall that you too must travel the same road. In the morning, think that you will not reach the evening. When evening comes, do not venture to assume the morning will be yours. Always be ready. Live in such a way that death can never find you unprepared. Many die suddenly and without warning, for the Son of Man will come at an hour when you are not expecting him. When that last hour comes, you will begin to think very differently of all your past life, and will bitterly regret being so careless and remiss. A man is not only happy, but wise also, if he is trying during his lifetime to be the sort of man he wants to be found at his death. We can be sure of dying happily if our lives show an utter disregard of the world, a fervent desire for progress in virtue, a love of discipline, the practice of penitence, readiness to obey, denial of self, and acceptance of any adversity for the love of Christ. While you are well, you can do many good works, but when you lose your health, I do not know that you will be able to do anything. Few people are improved by sickness and it's not those who are always travelling about who grow in sanctity. Do not rely on friends and acquaintances, nor leave your salvation to the future. Men will forget you sooner than you think. It's better to take thought for the future while you still have time, and to lay up some treasure in advance, rather than leave it to what others can do. If you do not look after your own interests now, who will care for them when you are dead? The present time is very precious. Here is the time of pardon. The day of salvation has come already. What a pity you do not make better use of the opportunity you now have of winning eternal life. The time will come when you will long for one day, even for one hour, to amend your life, and I fear you will not get it. My dear friend, what fear you can save yourself, what danger you can escape, if you only keep yourself God-fearing and mindful of your death. Try to live in such a way now, that when the hour of death comes you may feel joy, not fear. Learn to die to the world now, so that you may begin to live with Christ then. Learn not to value anything in this life now, so that you can go to Christ without anything to hinder you then. Subdue your body by penance now, so that you may have unshakable confidence then. You fool, why do you imagine that you will live a long life when you cannot be sure of a single day? Many have made this mistake, and have been snatched away from life when they least expected it. So often you hear people saying that so-and-so has been killed in battle, and so-and-so drowned. Another man has fallen from a height and broken his neck. One choked over a meal, another met his end in some sport. Others have died by fire, by violence, by sickness, by robbery. Death is the end of all, and the life of man passes by and vanishes like a shadow. Who will remember you after your death? And who will pray for you then? It is now, my dear friends, now that you must do anything that lies in your power to do. You have no idea when you'll die, nor what awaits you after death. While you still have time, lay up riches that do not pass away. Think of nothing but your salvation. Care for nothing but the things of God. Win friends now for yourself by honoring the saints of God and following their example so that when you leave this life behind, they will welcome you into eternal habitations. Remember all the time that you are a stranger and a wanderer on the earth, with no concern in the affairs of the world. Keep your heart free and lifted up to God, because you have an everlasting city, but not here. 
It's to that place that you must every day direct your prayers, your sighs, your tears, so that after death your soul may pass in gladness to the Lord. Amen. On Judgment and the Punishment of Sinners At all times, keep the end of your life in mind. How will you stand before that stern judge? Nothing is concealed from him. You receive no bribes and listens to no excuses, but will give the judgment that is just. You wretched, foolish sinner, you are sometimes afraid to face a man who is angry with you. So what reply will you make to God, who knows all the wrong you have done? Why do you not make some provision for yourself in the day of judgment? No one can be excused or defended by someone else then, but each one of us will find himself enough to bear. It is your labor now that is profitable, your tears now that are acceptable, your laments now that are heard, your sorrow now that atones and cleanses your soul. The patient man is already experiencing a deep and healthful purging. When he receives an injury, he is more distressed for the other's unkind thought than for the hurt he has received. He gladly prays for those who put obstacles in his path, forgives others their faults from his heart, and is not slow in seeking their forgiveness. He is more ready to feel pity for others than anger, but his own feelings he often treats roughly, and he tries to keep his natural impulses obedient to his spirit. It's better to prune out sins and cut out faults now than to preserve them for purifying later. We certainly let ourselves be blinded by the undisciplined affection we harbour for our old corrupt nature. What will that fire consume unless it's your sins? The more you spare yourself now and follow your natural appetites, the heavier the penalty you'll pay later, the more fuel you keep for the fire. Each man's particular punishment will depend on his sins. Those who gave way to despair and apathy will be stirred up with burning goads, and the gluttonous tormented with hunger and thirst. Lovers of luxury and pleasure will be drenched in burning pitch and stinking sulphur, and the envious will howl in pain like mad dogs. No sin will be without its appropriate torment. The proud will be utterly humiliated, and the avaricious feel the pint of direst poverty. One hour in torment there will be harder to bear than a hundred years under the heaviest penance here. There's no respite there, no solace for the damned. But here there is sometimes relief from toil, and we know the pleasure and comfort of friendship. You must feel concern and sorrow now for your sins, so that in the day of judgment you may be safe with the blessed. As it says in Scripture, How boldly then will the just man appear to meet his old persecutors, those who ground him down. Then the man who now submits himself humbly to the judgments of men will stand up to judge others. Then the poor and humble will have great confidence, and the proud will feel fear on every side. Then it will be seen that the man who learnt to be a fool and to be despised for Christ's sake was the one who was wise in this world. Then every trial patiently endured will bring its reward, and malice stand dumb with confusion. Then every devout man will rejoice, and every irreligious one will mourn. 
Then the flesh that has suffered will triumph more than if it had been always reared in luxury. Then a coarse habit will be resplendent and the glory of fine clothing will be dimmed. Then a poor cottage will find more praise than a golden palace. Then patience and constancy will help us more than all the power of this world. Then straightforward obedience will be exalted above all worldly wisdom. Then a good, pure conscience will bring more happiness than deep learning. Then contempt of wealth will carry more weight than all the treasures of the races of earth. Then you will find more comfort from your devout prayers than from elegant eating. Then you will feel more joy for silence preserved than for long talking. Then holy works will be of more value than many fine words. Then a disciplined life and hard penance will give more satisfaction than all the delights of earth. You must learn to suffer now to a small extent, so that you can then escape far worse suffering. Let your experiences now reveal your strength for the future. If you are only able to bear such a little in this life, how will you be able to bear eternal torment? If such slight suffering now makes you so impatient, what will Gehenna do then? You may be sure of this, you cannot have two joys. You cannot have pleasure here in this world and afterwards reign with Christ as well. If you'd spent your whole life right up to this day amidst honor and pleasures, what good would it all do you if you were to die at this very instant? There's no reality in anything except loving God and serving Him alone. And so the man who loves God with his whole heart does not fear death or punishment, judgment or hell, because perfect love enables us to come to God without fear. But it's no wonder if the man who still finds pleasure in sinning is afraid of death and judgment. All the same, it's a good thing if the fear of hell restrains you, if love cannot yet call you back from wrong. Indeed, anyone who rejects the fear of God will not be able to continue in what's good for long, but will soon fall into the snares of the devil. On being determined to amend our whole life. And this is one of the chapters when perhaps it's worth reminding ourselves again that Thomas Akempis was novice master and wrote these things for his fellow religious, the brethren of the common life. You must be watchful and diligent in the service of God and frequently ask yourself why you came here and why you left the world. Was it not in order to live for God and to become a spiritual man? You must therefore be eager to make spiritual progress because it will not be long before you receive the reward of your labors and then there will be no more fear or pain within your boundaries. You labor but a little now and your repose will be great. Indeed, you will know never-ending joy. If you remain faithful and earnest in all you do, God will certainly be faithful and generous in giving you your reward. You must never cease to hope that you will win your prize, though you must never assume that you will win it, otherwise you may become arrogant or careless. There was once a man who worried about this, and he tossed between hope and fear. Worn out with misery, he threw himself down one day to pray before an altar in the church, and as he turned the problem over in his mind, he said, If only I could know that I would go on persevering. Immediately, he was aware of God's reply within him. 
What would you do if you did know? Do in any case what you would do then, and you will be free from care. At once he was comforted and strengthened, and entrusted himself to the will of God, and his anxious tossings ceased. He no longer had any curiosity about what the future held for him, but was eager to discover what was God's will, the desirable thing, the perfect thing, so that he might begin and complete every work that was good. Be content to trust in the Lord and do good, says the prophet. Live on thy land, so that he will give thee what thy heart desires. There is one thing which keeps many people back from progress and eagerness to amend. They shrink from difficulty, and they know the struggle is hard. It is the people who make an effort to overcome things they find difficult and repugnant who make more progress than the rest in virtue. A man makes progress and merits grace above all in those points where he has to overcome his own nature and die to the claims of self. Some people do not have as much to overcome as others, and their old nature is not so hard to kill. But a man who is making a determined effort will be better fitted to make progress, even if he is subject to many violent feelings, than another man who is under better control but is less enthusiastic about attaining virtue. There are two things that help us especially to improve our lives. We must forcibly withdraw from the things to which our sinful nature inclines and eagerly seek the virtue in which we are deficient. You must also take care to be on your guard and to overcome those things especially which displease you most often in others. You may find opportunities for progress everywhere. If you see or hear of good examples, you should be inspired to follow them. If you observe anything that can be blamed, take care that you do not do the same. If you have ever done it, you must quickly mend your ways. As your own eye observes other people, you are in turn observed by them. It is so pleasant and delightful to see brothers who are fervent and devout, obedient and disciplined. But it's a sad and unhappy thing to see them living disorderly lives and not practicing the things to which they were called. It is very harmful to neglect the purpose of your vocation and to let your interests stray to things which are not entrusted to you. Be mindful of the purpose you have embraced, and keep before you the image of the Crucified One. You will have good cause for shame if you look at the life of Jesus Christ, because you have not yet shown much eagerness to mould yourself in his likeness, although you have for long enough been on the road of God. A religious who meditates devoutly and intently on the most holy life and passion of the Lord, will find there in abundance all that is useful and necessary for him, and there is no need for him to look outside Jesus for anything better. If only the crucified Jesus were to come into our hearts, how completely and how quickly we should be instructed. The earnest religious submits to all the commands laid upon him and takes them well. The careless, lukewarm religious meets one trial after another and finds misery everywhere, because he is deprived of the comfort of the Spirit and is forbidden to seek it from the world. The religious who lives without discipline is preparing himself for a fall. 
and the religious who looks for what is easy and less demanding will always be in difficulty, because he will always find something or other that he can object to. There are many other religious who live very strictly under the discipline of the cloister. How do they behave? They go out rarely, they live detached from the world, they eat the poorest fare and wear the coarsest clothes, they work hard and talk little, they keep long watches, rise early, prolong their prayers, are often reading, and they keep themselves very strictly disciplined. Look at the Carthusians, the Cistercians, and the monks and nuns of all the various orders. Every night they leave their beds to sing the praises of God. It would be disgraceful if you were slack in such a holy work when such a multitude of religious begin to rejoice before God. If only you had nothing else to do but praise the Lord our God with your heart and voice. If only you never had any need to eat or drink or sleep, but could praise God always and spend all your time in spiritual pursuits. You would be much happier than you are now when you are kept a slave to the body by its various needs. If only there were none of these things, nothing but the need to feed the soul with spiritual food. How sad it is that we taste that food so rarely. When a man reaches a state in which he does not look to any created thing to give him comfort, then it is that God begins to taste sweet to him, and then that he is quite content whatever happens. In that state he does not rejoice when something splendid results and is not saddened when something disappointing occurs. But he entrusts himself entirely and in confidence to God, who is for him all in all. Before God, nothing utterly perishes or dies, but all things live for him and hasten to do his will. Always remember your end, and remember that wasted time does not return. You will never acquire virtues, unless you show care and diligence. If you begin to grow cold, you will begin to find things difficult. But if you determine to find fervor, you will find great peace, and your task will be lightened by the grace of God and your love of virtue. The man who is fervent and diligent is ready for everything. It's a harder task to resist our faults and feelings than to sweat at manual labor. The man who does not avoid small failings gradually drifts into greater ones. You will always feel joy in the evening if you've spent the day profitably. Keep watch on yourself. Rouse yourself. Remind yourself, and whatever happens to others, do not take your attention from yourself. Your progress will depend on the roughness you show your old nature. Amen. And that is the end of the first book. <laughs>